0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: This show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups. As a business leader, you need to make decisions that set your company up for success, now and in the future. The challenge is in this fast changing world, the rules of strategy are being rewritten. The go-to solutions you once relied on are no longer enough. The fourth industrial revolution is upon us. As emerging technologies like AI and blockchain become ubiquitous, they will unleash unprecedented levels of disruption. Drawing on his broad global experience, our guest today delivers the essential guide to strategy for this new era, his clever framework will help you understand the deep strategic drivers of the fourth industrial revolution, reflect on how they affect you and your business and respond effectively. If you're ready to fulfill your potential as a leader and create a future ready business, it's time to get clever. We welcome author of clever, the six strategic drivers of the fourth industrial revolution, Alessandro Lanteri. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Alessandro. As a professor of entrepreneurship, executive educator and advisor, the number one question you are constantly asked is, what do organizations need to do to remain successful in the face of such unprecedented change?
0: The business world is changing really rapidly around us and business models are increasingly short-lived. So decision makers, have to make faster and more frequent decisions. And they have to do so even as the rules of strategy are being rewritten. These are big, deep changes. So for one, industrial scale is no longer a sustainable competitive advantage as it used to be. And the reason is industrial scale is now available for rent almost for everyone. You can sell via Amazon, so you don't need to open a store. You can fulfill your shipment with very efficient express couriers, so you don't need to have a logistic platform yourself. Logistic uh, suppliers even manage your fulfillment sometimes. And, of course, you can crowdsource your workforce on the Internet, so you don't need to have an office or computers. And this is a big change, of course. Another big area of change is that... uh, Companies do not compete with each other directly anymore. I mean, even as they compete, they also uh, supply each other and they collaborate. The first example that comes to mind is uh, Amazon and and Google. Uh, They obviously compete in the market for uh, operating systems of mobile phones, where iOS and Android are the two big uh, solutions and they compete, of course. But at the same time as they compete, Google pays. Apple, several billion dollars to ensure to be the default search engine on Safari. And vice versa, Apple pays Google for its cloud. So it's very odd to see two competitors that buy and and they supply each other, so they depend on each other. In fact, when Apple was no longer able to use uh, the Google Maps, it took a hit. So you can imagine that if one of the two companies were to disappear, the other one would suffer, at least in the short run. Another one is that business models are no longer defined by the industry you're in. I like to think about Uber. Uber plays effectively with the same business model across a dozen of industries. Of course, they do rides, so they replace a chauffeur or a a taxi, but they also deliver food, and they also deliver parcels, and they also bring patients to hospitals. These used to be Entirely different industries served by different companies operating different business models. And that's no longer the case.
1: So in formulating the Clever framework, you combined methodologies from business research and from the emerging discipline of future studies, and you included all the signals of change that you could come across. Emerging trends and deep drivers of these changes all resulted in the Clever framework. I'd love if you shared an overview of the Clever framework before we go deeper into each of the six levers.
0: Yes. So the the research took uh, quite a number of years, as you can imagine. I I investigated uh, uh, over seventy case studies. I looked at all the changes I could observe that are emerging, and in response to the fast uh, turbulent, fast changing, and turbulent times we live in this era, we call the 14th industrial revolution. And then I looked at the trends that uh, kept these different uh, changes together and. And then I dug dug a bit deeper and I started looking at the forces. So we call them the drivers. What are the big forces that will affect strategy in the future? And I came up with six. The first one is collaborative intelligence, learning systems, exponential technologies. And these three really are forces that depend on the shaping and the characteristics of digital technologies. And the next three are forces that have to do with business model and decision making. And the next three forces are value facilitation, ethical championship, and responsive decision making.
1: This is exactly what both Apple and Amazon have done. And it highlights how intangible assets have changed the rules of competition because they have four unique properties. I'd love if you shared all four properties.
0: Yes, absolutely. So the first property is that they can grow really quickly with a limited amount of uh, further investment. So they are scalable. But unfortunately, once you've invested even little amounts of money, this amount of money that you've invested cannot be recouped in case of bankruptcy, or if you want to shut down, there's hardly anything you can actually sell. So economists call this sunk costs. Once you've invested the money, it's gone. And because many of these uh, infrastructures are available for rent, they are fairly easy to replicate. You can see dozens of companies running effectively identical business models. Uber is, of course, a great example of a successful company, but as it emerged, there were dozens of other companies doing almost the same because it's so easy to replicate existing and emerging solutions. But then in order to protect your business, you have to find the right balance among different elements, like your brand power, some patents, and especially in this time and age, the way you collect and you use proprietary data. So these are the four characteristics, scalability, investments are some costs, easy to replicate, and you can protect them through complex synergies of different uh, drivers of value.
1: I think it's really important to understand that and to get a grasp of it like you do in the book you give deeper descriptions of the industrial revolutions that came before this fourth industrial revolution. You say, in an industrial revolution, the manner in which value is created fundamentally changes in response to substantial technological development. The previous methods of creating value rapidly become obsolete and new business models and organizations soon emerge. This shift drastically alters how our economy functions on every conceivable level. The businesses that actively respond to and embrace the new opportunities resulting from this change achieve success, while those that stick to the old ways tend to go out of business. Now let's use that to give a top-line history of the previous three industrial revolutions and how they impacted society. Yes, excellent. Uh, So towards the end of the 18th uh, century, Uh,
0: that's when we experienced what we now call the first industrial revolution. Of course, at the time it was called just the industrial revolution because we didn't know there were going to be more. (laughs) Uh, The the big technological uh, change that emerged, the the, the new solution uh, was steam power. and Steam power powered large machines that made mass production possible. And in order to... to to put together the huge investments required and to exploit the the possibilities of this technology, very large organizations emerged, effectively for the first time in the economy. In the past, we had large uh, organizations, but mostly around the army or the management of the state. But business-wise, this is the first time we have large, large organizations, really. And that led to division of labor, And for the first time, we also needed someone to tell others what to do. And so management was born for the first time. In fact, probably almost everything we know uh, in the discipline of uh, business management and leadership somehow dates back to uh, to those days. Now, about a century later, at the end of the 19th century, we had what we now call the Second Industrial Revolution, made possible by electrification. The big change between the first and the second, technologically speaking, is that with steam power, you can, you can have a lot of energy in one place where the, the steam engine was, and then you had to transfer this energy uh, throughout the building or throughout your factory. But with electrification, you could actually bring the power to, the, to, the, to the, each individual machine, and each could run its own smaller scale engine. So that made it possible to uh, distribute production in a different way. Assembly line became possible for the first time. Now, for the first time, we started seeing that uh, systems of production could be split into different tasks, and these different tasks could be coordinated smartly. And and that was the job of uh, of, uh, managers. It evolved that way. And this is the era when we see the emergence of what we call scientific management. So designing the, the flow of work and activities uh, designed to maximize the output, so create efficiency. And then towards uh, you know mid to late 20th century, we had the third industrial revolution, which is perhaps what we're still experiencing. It's we're probably at the at the end of that. And this is when the, the, the discovery of the transistor for first made the computers possible, and computers made. Uh, many changes possible of course in our business uh, experience in our daily life we now see it so automation became possible for some tasks and at the same time communication became much easier so when communication becomes easier and you you have more automation you you are now able to do slightly more complex uh, tasks which are ideally addressed by teams instead of individual workers so in a way The the, the third industrial revolution became uh, the stage for teams at work. And when you have teams, you need a new type of management. So you have project managers especially, because now tasks are designed and and managed uh, differently, and they should coordinate entire teams. And then, of course, uh, we will be talking maybe a little more about the fourth industrial revolution, which is the era we're experiencing now. The one thing I want your audience to remember, when we think about an industrial revolution, there are a few things that are all important. So first, you have a big technological change. And that powers or drives a change in business models. And When one or two or a few business models start changing, entire industries get rearranged or transformed around these new business models. So entire industries change. And when entire industries change, soon enough, economies are transformed. And when economies are transformed... Then the distribution of wealth in societies, even where people live, changes depending on where production becomes possible. And so societies respond. So industrial revolutions start from a technology, but then impact entire societies.
1: I was throwing myself back and I was going to go, imagine I'm in the second or the first or the third industrial revolution and somebody's telling me about one day we'll have this thing called 5G and computers will speak and understand language etc etc you'd be thinking that person's crazy and these crazy people these outliers who can see the future and work towards it are the people who really changed the world because they started introducing these new concepts these changes are coming and because of exponential change they're going to come way faster than they ever came in the previous industrial revolutions
0: absolutely right i couldn't agree with you
1: more Uh, This is one of the key themes, of course,
0: uh, in in my book as well. And uh, look, I I don't think you even need to go as far back as the second industrial revolution to see that. When I talk, when I give presentations, I I usually use the example of the GPS. I mean, in the 1980s, a GPS system was a tall radar tower installed in a military compound because that was military-grade technology. So you can imagine looking at this tall tower and if you, if you, if you pointed at this tall tower and, and told anyone, one day, every person will have one of these in their pockets, they would laugh at you. But sure enough, about 30 years later, every one of us has, in fact, probably more than one GPS. You have one on your phone, one in your car, one in your smartwatch. You barely notice, but that's the speed
1: at which we experience these things. Yeah, and we'll come back to that because that's one of the letters that come out of the clever framework, exponential change. But out of the third industrial revolution came three megatrends and they're critical to understanding this current revolution. And the first is technology and innovation, the rise of digital computing and a lightning fast internet.
0: Yes, that transformed really quickly the speed at which we can communicate. So that's a very strong first trend that, that emerges from technological evolution, of course. But that leads to the second big trend, which is uh, globalization, because when communications become communication becomes easier and, and smoother and seamless, you can more easily control a distributed, a geographically distributed uh, production system. But then that also opened increasingly. The doors to competition from uh, low-cost uh, countries. So when communication and transportation becomes cheap, globalization grows. But when globalization grows, now suddenly you have what uh, economists call uh, efficiency driven economies. So economies where the cost of productive factors are low, and that's where they, they, they derive their attractiveness. And so this, this transformed a little bit the way we, we compete. So physical goods are, are no longer very, very valuable. You can't really make a lot of money by selling uh, tractors or excavators, all those pieces of machineries, uh, if you are an American company, because your Asian competitors now can make a very similar machine, maybe of a slightly lower quality, but that is drastically cheaper. So for a customer, for a business here in the West, buying three cheap excavators is still better than buying one expensive excavator because that of course gives a lot of different uh, benefits in the speed of uh, of their production and this leads in a, in a way uh, so with uh, with this more integrated economies because of uh, globalization the third big mega trend that emerged is that it's a change a big change in demographic so there's more people traveling more and consumption styles overlap and merge These are very strong forces that are shaping
1: our world. And I was thinking about how those forces have collided. And a huge collision of that has been the recent global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. But it also happened back in 2008, 2009 because of these trends, because they were all interconnected, because they all collided in such a way that one little ripple had a massive tsunami effect throughout the world.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and this makes our world increasingly difficult to predict, understand, and navigate. So there is this very famous acronym, VUCA, V-U-C-A, which stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. And we use now, in, this was initially an acronym used by the military after the end of the Cold War during the Cold War, the world was kind of simple. Either you were pro-Russia or pro-US, and, and that was it. If something bad happened to one of your allies, it was bad. If something bad happened to one of your enemies ally, it was good. The world was much easier to navigate. Uh, now that's not no longer the case, of course. And uh, And for the business world, what you just said is a great example. A tiny, small, relatively tiny, small event at the other end of the world can put you out of business in a matter of a couple of months there are economies that uh, where the gdp went down 12, is expected to go down by 12 13% in 2020 for something that allegedly started in a wet market in in a province of china and these are of course or or for the, the financial crisis of 2008 it was started most but mostly because of the of the underwriting uh, practices of mortgage officers in banks in the U.S. Now, if something like this can affect your business unexpectedly and dramatically, you can't keep track of every such change that's going on around the world, right? There's too many things. So what you have to do instead is prepare, be prepared for multiple contingencies.
1: I was thinking about this and how it's impossible for a CEO of an organization to be involved in every decision within the organization. And this is why innovation, change, transformation is also reliant on the evolution of leadership within organizations. Or as you said, the origin of leadership styles and organizational structures came from army and religious entities. And unfortunately, they're still in practice. They're still in use. And this is why that all has to change. (laughs) I I don't know if
0: this this comment makes me more (laughs) sad or it makes me laugh more, (laughs) but you're absolutely right. I think that there are many organizations, including the state, including most uh, governmental uh, structures, even in this time and age, are managed and run according to principles that probably emerged uh, we Were probably refined last in you know after the Second World War when the world was actually much much uh, simpler and easier to navigate. There is um, an expectation that you could uh, um, have a hierarchy where the person at the top eventually <laughs> determines decisions and, and strategies. Where whereas as you correctly said, this is no longer possible. So, but leadership is uh, is in fact changing and uh, and and, and trickling down and, and permeating organizations in various ways. Uh, one of the examples I find the most fascinating in this, uh, in this respect is the example of, uh, of what we call DAOs, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. For those who are not very familiar with this, uh, I, if you're familiar, for example, with uh, Bitcoin and blockchain-based uh, um, solutions, one of the interesting elements, among others, but one element worth pointing out, that these are organizations which affect lives and they have economic impact. They do not have a CEO. They do not have shareholders. They don't have a board meeting. So they all run on consensus of a democratic style, uh, although the democratic level there might change, and protocols and rules that are agreed upon at the beginning. And this is a very, very different way of running a complex organization.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I was researching, I was telling you, I'm writing my own book. And I was researching about Amazon. And I was watching this video with Jeff Bezos. And he was explaining how his leadership style had evolved. And he was like, sure, it's evolved because the company's evolved. And he said, now I've arranged my work day and my work practices in such a way that I work two to three years in the future. And if I'm drawn into the present, something's wrong because I need to delegate so much and and, and give my teams autonomy so, to such an extent that they can make decisions certainly on where to go, but certainly not to say how to do it as well. I know that that is one of the big problems within organizations is that Leadership feel they need to micromanage every decision. And that in turn is driven by quarterly earning calls and then pressure from the board and pressure from stakeholders and shareholders. And the whole system needs a new lick of paint. It needs to all change in order for the structure of companies to change. I love this example. It also reminds me of another notion of these future-ready companies
0: Another characteristics is that they... They are always in in beta. They are never never finished. Uh, not only the products keep evolving, but organizations themselves and the way they address problems and the way they they keep refining and fine tuning their business model, the assumptions, and so on. We may come back to this point uh, later because it relates to the last uh, letter in the in the clever framework. It's a responsive decision making. I think that you you. You pointed
1: it out very, very clearly here. Yeah, let's get to the clever framework (laughs) because we'll run out of time. We won't even have (laughs) spoken about it. So let's start with the C of the clever framework and the storytelling of Tesla's woe when the company launched its first mass market car, the Model 3, and used an extremely advanced automated assembly line to fulfill their orders. Everybody thought they were geniuses. All of a sudden, they discovered actually the human has some value here. Yes, it it's uh it's funny because uh,
0: when you when you see the 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 photos of the the factory floor at Tesla, one of the th- the things that strikes you is the fact that there's no one there These are huge setups of machines that do a lot of nice things and very efficiently um but there's no people. and when they try that, uh, unfortunately, there are some things that machines really do super well. you know they are very consistent and precise and repetitive in certain tasks. But when it comes to the last stage of assembling a car, uh, that requires pretty much putting together tens of thousands of different parts and pieces. And so many things can be one inch off or they can be uh, you know a few seconds delayed. And, and robots are no longer as efficient as they could be. And that's the, sta- the stage where a human should step in. And a human has this uh, responsiveness and this ability to troubleshoot and problem-solve on the go. And so what What eventually uh, Elon Musk was, um, was forced to do is to bring humans back in the picture. And there is this very famous uh, uh, tweet of his saying, humans are underrated, even in this time and age. So <laughs> I think what, what that teaches us is that we are increasingly accepting and realizing that humans are really extraordinary at doing certain things, and machines slash robots are incredibly talented and excellent at doing other things. And so the first layer of uh, the first criterion here, the first concept, is that there should be some sort of a division of labor between humans and machines. But in the book, so the first letter is refers to collaborative intelligence. And, and for me, that means a bit more. So it's not, not only the division of labor, it's uh, the combination of humans and machines into a system that can achieve something that couldn't be achieved separately. So what, what are those scenarios, the situations where humans give machines some sort of superpowers? And where are the situations where machines give humans superpowers? So that humans and machines together can you know show what I call collaborative intelligence.
1: When it comes to humans collaborating effectively, I love how you said water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen, but understanding all the properties of the elements of hydrogen and and oxygen separately won't help you fully fully understand the properties of water itself. When two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom are combined, they become something else entirely. And this is the impact of effective collaborative intelligence. I love that.
0: It's an an example that uh, dates back to my my days uh, in graduate school during my PhD age. Uh, So that was a long time ago. But uh, it stuck with me. I think it's very powerful. And you can even bring it, uh, you know, push it further and say, okay, if you combine different other chemicals, then you can have, uh, for example, you can have proteins. And if you combine proteins, then you have... uh, Uh, muscles and then you put muscles you have creatures and you have societies and and they all at the end of the day 60 percent of human society is made of hydrogen and oxygen uh, because we are made of of water and yet you can't explain anything at that level so this is what this is the concept of uh, of emergent properties so when you combine two elements or more Together, they become something new and something different. And I think that humans and machines are actually going precisely in that direction. And we don't understand them yet. I I don't think that we have the the sophistication to understand that. One of the big challenges is that, as you were saying earlier, the the organizations where we work are still managed based on the the knowledge we have. So you can imagine jobs, uh, job descriptions, job assessment. These are, are tasks performed by HR. And HR doesn't necessarily understand uh, enough to redesign.
1: I was thinking of that emergent properties thing. And I remember there's an artist I love, a guy called Olafur Arnolds, and he's a pianist. And he is also part of the band Chiasmos. And he and a friend developed this algorithm. And the algorithm picks up when he plays a note. And then it, the algorithm is actually in two other autonomous pianos, if you want to call them that. And the reason he says he does it is because when he plays a note in music college, you're taught that this note goes with that note. It forms a paradigm for how you think, but when you use it with the algorithm, the algorithm will bring him in a totally different direction that he never had thought of before. And I thought it was such a beautiful way to think of the utopian view of where symbiosis in a way with computers or collaborative intelligence can bring us to somewhere totally emergent, totally new, and somewhere where it frees us up to do more collaborative thinking, more strategic thinking, solving bigger, more complex problems.
0: I find this uh, this example uh, excellent. I I want to to check him out now.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm his
0: manager. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it all. <laughs> you could see that uh, in a different way, in a different form, but uh, there was uh, this incredibly Influential and, uh, and and very important example of uh, of, of uh, AlphaGo uh, playing, uh, developing an algorithm that plays this ancient game of strategy, uh, Go, uh, where humans had dominated forever because it was too complicated to be replicated by to, to be played by machines. But uh, DeepMind developed a set of algorithms and AlphaGo learned how to play. In a way that's not only better than the way humans play, it's uh, effectively different. So uh, Lee Sedol, the 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 at the time in twenty sixteen, if I remember correctly, the reigning champion of Go, uh, played this incredibly important game with with the algorithm, and he lost. But uh, after losing, he he also commented that uh, the way the machine. Approaches the game of Go, and some of the decisions it makes are qualitatively different from the way humans makes the same similar decisions. And I, I find this uh, also inspirational and fascinating. Um, there are a few more examples. Another one I really like is uh, is the what they call uh, freestyle chess tournaments, where you could play as a combination of humans and 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 machines and so software so you could play in a te- as a team, and it could be one or two humans using software together to play against someone else and it turns out that uh, in those uh, freestyle uh, tournament, it's not the, the best computer that wins, and it's not the, the greatest uh, grandmaster that wins, it's the team that collaborates the best, so you have the machines crunching the numbers, so to speak, uh, evaluating all possible uh, moves and strategies, and the humans bringing in their own uh, creativity and their own uh, broader perspective on strategy. And the combination of the two dominates. And I, I, I love that.
1: Yeah, and I love another thing you talk about, which is kind of the idea of technology as an assistant or a peer. And you say, as an assistant, it helps humans perform their tasks, but as a peer, it does the work of an employee with a human only intervening to solve more difficult issues. And you give the example of a traditional delivery warehouse versus an Amazon one.
0: I saw there all these videos online available uh, showing the, the the way Amazon manages its warehouses uh, using a, a, a robot called Kiva, which they acquired a few years back. So it's very interesting, because instead of sending humans around the the warehouse to pick up the items to assemble a package for shipping. Uh, It's actually the robot that brings the shelves to the human so that the human doesn't make a mistake. Uh, So the human effectively just picks the item from from a shelf and puts it in a box. Uh, I I have a a little anecdote, something that happened to me a few years back. And at the time, I was completely shocked. And I had no idea what it meant. And now I, I understand it. And, and I find it even more fascinating. It doesn't happen very often, but I received the wrong shipment from uh, from Amazon. It might have been that one time. It was the wrong book. So I sent a, an email to, to them to, 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 to mention that uh, I had received the wrong book. And they returned to me and they asked me only one question. And the question was, what is the weight of the book? Wow. And I was absolutely speechless. and I had no clue what's going on. And then later, I figured I, I've learned that uh, after a ship, a package is ready. Uh, there is quality control, and in a traditional human-led uh, organization, quality control is made by a human who opens the box and checks, making sure that everything is there. But what Amazon does, it, it weights each, each package, and they determine whether the the weight of the package is within uh, uh, range. So if it's in the right range, the package is approved and it's shipped out. And so when they shipped me the wrong, uh, <laughs> the wrong book, the, the problem was that the, the book they sent me had the same weight as the book I ordered. And that's why the quality control failed. It's quite unexpected. So it is indeed interesting that humans and machines use different skills to perform the same tasks. And you could really have someone else do part
1: of your job. And you talk about this later on in the book that that actually frees up cognitive capacity which is so key in the world of so much data, so many decisions, et cetera. Going back to what Jeff Bezos was saying about, actually, if he doesn't have to think about the present, it gives him more scope to think about the future. But I wanted to talk about one thing, because you, you really highlight this is going to be a huge leadership challenge in the future. And I wanted to, to let you know, we had Charles Handy, the great business thinker, great thought leader on the show earlier on in this year. And he highlighted the difference between leadership and management. And he said that leaders lead people, but managers manage things, processes, etc. And in your book, you see machines as managers, which leads to a dilemma. There is no notion of leadership or team management that trains us how to coordinate the human and the machine. Which is the dilemma that you talk about, a huge leadership dilemma, because that is a total paradigm shift for the future?
0: yes, I, I think that this is incredibly difficult to 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 grasp and to manage. Look, you don't even need a very smart machine to manage a human. You know uh, there are some systems used for for call centers which help uh, call center operators deal with uh, with customers, especially when they speak English to each other, but English is not the native language of either of those of them. And so, it's difficult to capture the nuances of uh, a frustrated customer and how he's feeling when he's complaining, and 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 decide what's the right answer. So, there are some of these softwares available now that uh, analyze the the um, the voice, the the sound, free, the frequency of the voice, and they they interpret it and they determine the emotional state. Of, uh, of the client complaining. And so based on that, they recommend to the operator a number of sentences that he could try and say to manage the situation. And it's, uh, it's obvious that, I mean, there, there's a selection, or there's two or three options, and so the operator reads one of those. But at the same time, machines learn. And uh, the, next, uh, the next time a similar situation uh, presents itself, the machine will no longer recommend three options It will only recommend two because one is obviously inferior. And then the next thing you know is <laughs> the machine will only recommend one. And then when that happens, it's almost as if the human is, uh, is the assistant of the machine. The machine makes the decision and tells you what you have to say. And then the machines are increasingly used to uh, assess performance. Uh, They're also used for recruitment purposes. We have uh, remote uh, interviews performed by uh, AI these days. So I I believe that this is a huge change. And combined with the notion of collaborative intelligence we we are discussing, how do you put together uh, two two co-workers with such different skill sets, the machines and the humans, who also don't communicate naturally to each other? So if your boss tells you to do something or gives you feedback, you may still have a discussion. You can uh, disagree. You can uh, learn from him. But when a machine tells you what to do or says your performance is three out of five, it's very, very difficult to receive that feedback or to receive that order without being able to learn from it or respond to it. So it's a, at the human level, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think. And I, I agree at the leadership uh, <laughs> scale, at, at the leadership level it's even harder
1: and it's going to take huge amount of educating, re-educating and forgetting. You talked about some costs before sinking the costs of the education we've had to date and the way we've been trained and the way we've got to the roles that we're in, we have to all wipe that out and forget about it and rebuild for the future. And that's the most difficult thing, isn't it? Letting it go of the way we've learned and actually learning is the next in the clever framework. So we're only on two, <laughs> <laughs> we're only on the C and the L we won't get through them all but we'll maybe we'll speed up a little bit L of the Clever Framework stands for learning systems and here you say you don't like to talk about artificial intelligence you prefer learning systems and there are three major approaches to learning systems supervised learning unsupervised learning and reinforcement learning
0: yes I I, I don't like the word intelligence because I truly believe that the way we understand intelligence, intelligence is a human notion. It has to do with with the way humans do things. And when we use the word intelligence to talk about something that is different from humans, I think that most many of us have a, a sort of an emotional response, and that scares us, and and it leads us in the wrong direction. Um, there's a there's a great book I I read when I was educating myself in the, in this field uh, that had a, a beautiful example. Uh, about airplanes so we, we are all, not anymore during covid but we're all used to traveling by plane regularly and no one is worried that the plane might swallow us but if we called a plane instead of calling it a plane if we called it like a mechanical bird all the emotional association with the notion of a bird would transform our relationship with the item um you could think, okay, you enter inside a bird. What if uh, what if birds become more common? What what are they going to do? What if they become autonomous? What if they decide to uh, <laughs> to do things that they can't decide? Uh, it's just the you know the the metaphorical association that we have in our minds, uh, associational thoughts that we have in our mind that lead us to believe that artificial intelligence has a certain set of possibilities and capabilities that it doesn't have. What it does have, as you mentioned, it has some very effective ways of learning and by learning what we mean is uh, and this is true for humans as well as for machines it means changing your behavior as a in in response to a uh, to an experience so you do something and then as a result of that you change your behavior and this is what uh, machine learning does so in supervised learning the way it works is that humans Tell machines how to classify information. Probably the most intuitive example there would be, you know, when when you tag a person on a social media uh, in a photo. You upload a photo and you say, this is Alessandro, this is Ada. What what you're doing, you're, you're training an algorithm and you're supervising the learning of this algorithm. You're telling the algorithm that whenever they see an image, With those properties, those characteristics, that's Alessandro. And over a number of repetitions of this tagging and this supervised learning, the algorithm learns to autonomously associate the characteristics of those photos and what all those photos have in common with my name. But of course, it doesn't know who I am. It doesn't even know that I'm a person. You know, they, they don't have a notion of a person. So that's why I don't like to call them intelligent. Some of the things they do, however, are incredibly fascinating. When it comes to unsupervised learning, for example, um, we're actually usually asking the algorithm to figure out for it on its own what do different uh, data sets have in common. I'm going to use a small example here because I think it makes it a little uh, easier to understand. So instead of telling the machine what to look for, we let it do it on its own. And this is used, for example, in marketing. Uh, one of the, the applications of this technology is identifying users or customers that have certain things in common, in a way that humans can't do it. So there is this, uh, this example from uh, from a, a Chinese fintech company. It's part of the Alibaba group, and it's called Ant Financial. So they they have a, a payment, a mobile payment service, and this payment. Uh, uh, are very common in China. So they have data from millions of transactions performed every day. And one of the, and they also have insurance companies. They have a number of companies uh, associated to, to all under the anti-financial umbrella. But what happened there that I found fascinating is that at some point the algorithm figured out that there were certain users who spent more money than other users to get the, the screen of their mobile phone fixed. And those same users also spent more money for items that are classified as skinny jeans. So, when you combine these two information, you could find out that customers who wear skinny jeans break their phones more frequently, and so they get it fixed more frequently. This is not something that humans can do. So, Ant Financial launched an insurance policy targeted exclusively at girls who wear skinny jeans, and it's an insurance policy for your mobile phone screen.
1: I love that, man. That's brilliant. And it reminds me of we had this great guest on the show before, AK Pradeep, and his book is called AI for product development and marketing. And he told us on the show that, again, AI did this. It it spotted patterns in people talking about ice cream at breakfast time. So again, (laughs) kind of like the Oliver Arnold's idea of the emergent solution that came and exactly like this idea of the the skinny jeans and the phone insurance. They came up with this idea to use the milk from breakfast cereal to make ice cream. And it became an absolute hit product. And it's that exact thing, that symbiosis of thinking of of human and machine that can bring us in these brilliant places if we restructure recalibrate the world around it to enable it yes absolutely i, I love this example I'm actually. <laughs> if you put them all together now sell that ice cream to <laughs> yeah, the people because... with skinny jeans and the phones it <laughs> will be like ai ai human triumph <laughs> but let's move on quickly because we're, we're not going to get through everything in depth but speaking of moving on quickly excuse the pun we'll move to exponential growth and here you give us a brief explanation of the first e of the of framework which is exponential growth because I'd, I'd love within here what you do is you go a bit deeper into the breakdown of exponential technologies into the six stages of development that ray Kurzweil introduced digitization deceptive growth disruptive growth dematerialization demonetization and democratization but it'd be great to explore this as you do in the book, through the lens of Kodak. I love the way you did this in the book.
0: Yes, Kodak is a, is a sad story in a way. It's a cautionary tale. Uh, I, I chose this for the book because it's fairly well-known, and I didn't want this to, to sound too uh, exotic <laughs> to, to most of my readers. But uh, what happened with, uh, with Kodak is that Kodak had an engineer uh, who developed and patented the technology of digital photography. And when that happened, it was the, the mid 70s. Kodak had a 90% market share of uh, analogic so camera with film, uh, film uh, photography, in the U.S. So they had 90% market share. So they were effectively monopolists. They were the largest <laughs> operator in the in the industry. They had lots of resources, great brand recognition, and obviously su- superior R&D capabilities because they developed this technology. And yet they didn't believe in it enough to to transition to to it as the new as a new system. And there's a few reasons for this. Of course, one of the reasons is that they didn't want to cannibalize their existing business. And this is something we've learned, and um, I think that nowadays most companies are no longer worried about cannibalizing their sales. You know you have uh, Apple releases uh, an iphone, a new iPhone every every year, and more than one really. And obviously, the new iPhones cannibalize the sales of the previous iPhone. That's still pretty good. Um, the second thing is that, what, and this is really the core of, of this chapter, what Kodak couldn't see is how rapidly the technology was evolving and how rapidly it was going to be uh, viable as a solution and how rapidly, therefore, a market would around, uh, emerge around it. You could even find the, you know, some of the minutes of the board meetings at the time And uh, it's obvious that uh, the the decision makers at Kodak had a prediction that the technology would only become viable many years later. And what happened instead is that it became viable by, let's say, the early 90s, mid-90s. So digital photography in the mid-90s got to a resolution of about 1 megapixel, which is what what was good enough for most most, uh, consumers. That's probably also the time, maybe mid '90s, uh, early 2000. That's when everybody had their own uh, digital camera for the first time. And at that point in time, uh, the film technology was doomed, because the film technology can keep getting better and better, but at a much lower pace, slower pace, whereas these exponential technologies really get better super fast, and it's difficult to grasp how fast. Uh, one of the ways I look at this is uh, if you think about your phone, I mean, I'm sure everyone in the, uh, listening to the show has a smartphone. And I'm sure that they have uh, probably a, a very good camera on it, maybe something around 16 megapixels or so, which was the, the best technology available three, four years ago. But then two years ago, the new generation came out. And the new generation is close to 40 to 48 megapixels. And that sounds incredible, but last year, the new generation came out, and that's 108 megapixels. So two lessons to be learned here. The first is that each new iteration, the the new generation technologies are coming out really, really fast. But the other thing is that each new generation has an improvement larger than all of the previously accumulated improvements. So we went from... Zero, one megapixel to 40 megapixels in uh, 25 years. And then in one year, we went from 40 to 108. So that improvement is bigger than everything we've ever seen. And that is a huge challenge for decision makers because these technologies become so much better so fast that you have to live in the future, literally, to understand what can be done with that and how cheap they become how fast
1: it's actually that deceptive growth that catches us all off guard individually as well so people all of a sudden you know may have been thinking for a long time about changing their job and all of a sudden some shift in the environment comes where they are made redundant and they're like "Gone." i should have made that decision when i was in charge of it and this is what i like about your book is that giving people information in a clear framework in order for them to make really good strategic decisions. And it does help individuals who work in organizations as well. And before I move on, I just want to thank our sponsors, which is Microsoft for startups uh, for all their help and support today. I was thinking about this idea of exponential growth, Alessandro. And I saw this, and you probably do as well, with Alexa, Cortana, and Siri and these are voice assistants where most people try it and see it as a kind of a trivial thing for children to play around with or maybe something to use for simplify, like turn on a plug or a light or the radio or play Spotify, whatever it might be. And they dismiss it quickly as being not very effective or not very advanced. But meanwhile, it's actually advancing at an exponential rate in the background. And all of a sudden, it reemerges. And one of those technologies that you point out in the book that went through a similar cycle, that because we heard all the hype about this before in the past, was 3D printing. That this is this thing, this great thing. And some people will have bought them little 3D printers at home, but again, see them as kind of trivial toys or kids' toys or novelties in some way. But 3D printing is going to have a massive effect on the world of production and industry and business in every aspect because it totally interrupts the supply chain and moves us towards more needing platforms than actually providing physical products themselves.
0: It is a great uh, example of what we we call as a category like immersive technology. You you mentioned this earlier, so uh, and and, uh, these are technologies where we interact with them in a natural way for humans to do so. So instead of having to learn how to type certain commands on a a keyboard, as we used to do in the 80s, instead of, you know, now when we use a computer, we we drag a mouse, we click on an icon, which is more intuitive, but we still have to adapt our behavior to the user interface of computers. What, uh, for example, uh, augmented and virtual reality is doing and what these uh, conversational technologies are doing they are are learning how to communicate in a a more human way. I think this is a huge change. Uh, One of the things that you already highlighted earlier is that it decreases the cognitive effort for humans to use the information. So imagine when you do a search on Google, you have to choose a number of things and you have to read instructions and then you have to act on them. Instead, with these conversational uh, platforms, you can just tell them what to do. It's faster, it's more spontaneous, and it, it comes naturally to many of us. And when it comes to 3D printing, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much uh, it's going to change the, the, the world economy as we know it, but I, I think it's going to be really dramatic. Um, I'm not going to say the name, but I, I, I've done some work with a very, very large uh, uh, manif- producer of uh, high-quality aluminum and so they make the aluminum we have in uh, in premium cars in uh, in the airplanes and one of the things that uh, that that seems to 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 be problematic for a company like that is that uh, 3d printing will not only change the way we 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 manufacture parts but it's also the materials we use now aluminum is a is a great material because it's uh, cost effective but there are materials like uh, titanium, which are superior to aluminum in almost every way, but they're too expensive. One of the characteristics of 3D printing is that it almost eliminates waste. So in some parts, some, some parts can be print, 3D printed using as little as 15% of the raw material that's, that would be required with, um, with the traditional manufacturing techniques. So suddenly, if you have an 85% saving on the raw material, you can probably transition to a new type of material. You can now use titanium because you need so little of it. So, so many things are going to be transformed. And I I, I completely agree with you. And then, of course, logistics will change. Uh, we no longer need to manufacture things and send them. You, you can just uh, 3D print them closer to the point of use. And increasingly, I believe that... Uh, and this is, this, is goes, this is in line with what we were saying from the very beginning, the value, uh, value creation will no longer be with the physical version of the item, it will be with the digital version of the item. So when you want something new, you pay for the file that lets you 3D print it. And the, the physical version of it, you can do a dozen times, it doesn't matter
1: anymore. So, for example, I smash a mug in my uh, kitchen, And I say, okay, I'll go and print a new one. But the value may be in the file that I print. So I'm going to need to download a new file or a matching file. Or I thought about this actually, that it could drive new business models. So for example, like an espresso machine, I buy the machine. It's probably, you know, a razor and blades model where the money is made on the capsules, not the machine itself. But I buy the 3D printer machine. I sign up for a subscription the way I do for my Netflix that entitles me to an ongoing supply of printed material, so I can print in 3D and then I might get the file for free. And the reason I mention that is because it brings us to the next part of the framework, which is V. And this is really important to understand how do I attribute value or how do I create value? Because the value creation is where the gold is.
0: Yes, uh, this also moves us in the second part of the framework. So the first three things we said, C, L, and E, are really about the characteristics of the technology, and digital technology particularly. Now, V is, uh, is more about how we make decisions to create value, as you, as you said. And it is made possible by digital technologies, but it's independent from it. The The example I, I use here, uh, usually to explain this concept, is that... Um, so imagine, imagine when, you, when you, you rent an apartment on, uh, on Airbnb, uh, you give some money to the landlord and the landlord gives you access to his apartment. And for you as a, as a, as a tourist, as a, as a host, um, as a guest, um, the, the ab- ability to use the apartment is worth to you more than the money you give. And to the landlord, it's the opposite. The landlord values the money more than the apartment. So in this exchange, you create value. There is a bit extra value for me because I have something that's worth more to me than and the same for the land. What's interesting, however, is that Airbnb doesn't really do any of it. They don't have apartments. They don't rent apartments. What they do is they facilitate all of those exchanges that actually create value. That's why I talk about this, uh, this approach, value facilitation rather than value creation. Uh, many people talk about this as, a. Uh, they refer to this as platform models. I, I don't have anything against uh, the notion of a platform, but the word platform is used in other senses, to be honest, in, um, in, uh, in, in business. So I thought that value facilitation was clearer. And it's interesting then, if you look at it, that as we said, Airbnb doesn't have any real estate. They don't have all the, um, tangible physical capital that would have been required normally to, to become a large, uh, a large company in this industry. Mm, you think about the largest on the planet would be Marriott. They have over one million rooms and their market capitalization is a fraction of Airbnb. Although Marriott has also a few billions of dollars worth of real estate. And Airbnb has probably now about 7 million rooms with no real estate. So what makes this business model so powerful is that they can grow really quickly. They require little labor, little um, workforce, uh, because most of the value creation is done by your users interacting to each other.
1: You mentioned Airbnb. Because they leverage users who create value for each other. Platforms employ fewer staff, and, and this is one of the big challenges of the future with technological unemployment is because some of the biggest companies in the world are platforms, and platforms traditionally employ less staff, and, and in a way, hire skilled staff. And then if you bring in robots and automi- automation, they're going to have fewer of those highly skilled people. And this causes a huge dilemma for the future, but I'm gonna get back to this. So Airbnb has just over 3,000 employees while Hilton has 169,000 and Marriott has 176,000. And among the 10 most valuable global brands, nine operate platforms. And according to McKinsey, seven of the world's 12 largest companies employ the model Alibaba, Alphabet, Google's parent company, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Tencent all operate platforms. So given the increasing power of platforms, traditional pipeline businesses must make a strategic decision on how to respond. And you give these examples in the book of how they can respond. There's three main ways they can do so.
0: Yes, indeed. Every traditional company, we call them pipeline company because they operate like a pipe. You have the inputs at one end, it goes through the pipe, value is created, and it comes out at the other end and you sell it. The platforms are more managed. They, are, they have more users interacting with each other. So how do pipeline companies respond and react to, to the, threat, the threat of uh, platforms? There are three, three ways, as you said. So the first one is to, to try and replicate some of the value propositions of the platforms. So one of the things that we found out uh, through the big success of Airbnb is that uh, uh, tourists like to have uh, a, the experience of the local when they travel. And uh, the other thing is that they like to socialize with their, their hosts. And so some hotels, what they're doing, uh, they're developing what we call pod hotels models. You have uh, very small, tiny bedrooms where people go, and they are a bit cheaper, of course, because they're small, uh, but you have large so- socialization areas. Um, so in a way, you replicate the experience of meeting people as you travel. And so that's the first response. The second option is to have a sort of a hybrid business model where you keep running your existing model, but then at the same time, you can make some of your rooms available, for example, through Airbnb. Uh, There are boutique hotels and small hotels that are doing that. So they, they become more hybrid. And the third option is to try and become a platform yourself. So to embrace this business model completely. I think one of the great examples here is the example of, uh, of John Deere. Uh, they traditionally manufactured uh, farming machinery. And uh, you can't imagine, you can't think of anything more pipeline than that, right? You have raw materials, uh, labor, capital machines. You, 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 you do your magic and at the end you have a tractor. What they managed to do, however, was to install sensors on all of their uh, machines and these, these sensors let machines gather data and communicate data. And so they're slowly transforming into a, a farming management system where you can connect a farmer with uh, uh, an agronomist. You can uh, connect uh, the weather forecast information to the farmer on the ground. You can have uh, all sorts of data gathered across. The United States, where you learn a lot of information from all sorts of sensors, planting all sorts of different plants in different conditions and learning from it. And then you provide that advice to all of the actors on the platform. So I think the John Deere here is probably the, the most advanced response you can see in this, uh, in this domain. And it, it's kind of surprising because, as you said, there are these uh, very large corporations running a platform business model. And yet, I think if I remember the figures correctly, less than three percent of the world or of the of of the companies on the planet are doing the same thing. And this is very surprising, and I don't think it can last very long.
1: Yeah, and and like you said, business models are not set in stone. And it reminded me of that the reason I, I brought up Jeff Bezos saying that his leadership style evolved because the business evolved, but so must your business model and they need to evolve as the company grows and external conditions change moreover. But the great example you give is Microsoft's LinkedIn and how that business evolved as the user need evolved, as new market conditions evolved, et cetera. And they came up with total new products. Yes, indeed. So
0: LinkedIn started as a, as a platform where professionals could post their CVs, so to speak, and they interact with each other. But as soon as you have a number of professionals uh, meeting all in the same place, that place becomes incredibly attractive for uh, recruitment. Uh, So companies looking to hire these these professionals. And that changed the the nature of the the platform. So suddenly, uh, you had someone willing to pay in order to be part of it. And when so many companies and professionals started interacting on that platform, then there were additional service providers who were attracted to it. For example, uh, companies selling uh, consulting services or training services. Now, LinkedIn is developing its own learning platform because it saw the uh, incredible attractiveness of of the synergy of of offering uh, uh, training. And so, in a way, LinkedIn is evolving both as a platform but also as a pipeline business, so to speak. So they, they create new services made possible by the platform.
1: And again, having the mindset open to spot those opportunities is one thing, and then having the leadership that will back those ideas is a totally different one. We're going to finish up with the last two, very briefly, the last two letters of the Clever Framework. E is ethical, championship, and the or then is responsive decision-making. Maybe you give us a top line on both of those, Alessandro.
0: I'll keep this very short, but you're you're right. So ethics uh, is incredibly important for a number of reasons, and the the book explains them in uh, in greater detail. But it's uh, it's both a a driver for value creation, and here I think about all the businesses with purpose. There is a great example of uh, Unilever's uh, brand Dove and a few more. The uh, known is going in the same direction so these are businesses that exist to bring about a positive change in the world besides making money they're still for profit of course but there is a huge response from the market and there is a, a huge demand in the market for this type of, um, of companies and they actually perform incredibly well so the, 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 this is a, interestingly enough this is the chapter where I talk more about ethics and it's the chapter with the greatest number of de- of data. It's, it's full of numbers. Because I didn't want my readers to think, oh, this is all the soft, uh, wishy-washy, you know, uh, uh, all, all nice to hear, but it, it's not real in business. And I, I wanted to back it up with a lot of numbers. Uh, responsive decision-making is really about uh, this idea that we live in a world that's changing and evolving so rapidly that you need to... Constantly learn from the change, get feedback, and make decisions that are reactive. So respond to what you learn. I read it uh, earlier today or yesterday that Segway is uh, is shutting down. Uh, Segway is a, is a two-wheeled uh, personal vehicle. that was supposed to revolutionize the way people walk. Now, it turns out most people don't really want to change the way they walk. But um, it took many years for them to to... To decide to fold but uh, what is interesting is that this this company developed the product in complete secrecy uh, they spent i think a hundred million dollars developing it they were absolutely confidential for seven years and then they launched with a massive communication campaign without ever really hearing from the users what they thought what did users need it was it uh, the right way to address the problem and so on now we have a lot of techniques and methods to 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 do this better to learn better mostly coming from uh, from the world of startups because for startups everything is new they don't know anything and the more startups uh, we have the more we we learn well we learn how to learn in a world where you don't know anything but traditional companies know something what they what was successful in the past Startups are much more learning-driven. But if the world around you changes as fast as our world is changing, even if you operate a traditional company, you have to start learning like a startup. And I think that this is is what the last chapter does for you. It it starts giving you a set of messages around the importance of doing this and a few examples of how to do that successfully successfully. So that's the last part of the framework.
1: A lovely, excuse the pun here, this is terrible, segue for me to say (laughs) our sponsor is Microsoft for Startups. So thanks to our sponsor, Microsoft for Startups. If you had a, a parting message, so I mentioned at the start that you formulated this framework and you have that question that most organization leaders ask you, what would be your one piece of advice if you had only one opportunity to go, just do this, what would that be?
0: The reason I wrote this book to answer that question is because I don't have an answer. These are the forces that will affect what a good answer will be in the near future. So all I have to offer is understand the forces and then adapt them to your needs and your business and your business model. Uh, At the end of each chapter, there is a a list with a few questions that readers can, can, can go through. See what does each driver mean to them and, and to their company. And I, I think that's the most I could do to make it relevant to every user. I don't want to give advice uh, because the world around us is changing so fast. But I'm pointing in the direction where I think the readers
1: should look to find an answer. Where can people find out more about you and your work, Alessandro?
0: Because I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. I, I have a website, uh, alelanteri.com. So that's A L E L A N com, and my book is available on Amazon if you want to to find out a bit more about the book before before buying it I also have a few videos on YouTube that illustrate uh, the book in uh, in a bit more detail but I want to take a chance if you don't mind to say one more thing because you've been talking about the leadership challenges in this world that I describe in the book and uh, we didn't uh, prepare in any way for this, but I, there's one thing I want to tell you. So my plans for the future are to go exactly in the direction of what you just said, and I, uh, around the leadership challenges, and <laughs> more specifically, my plan is to transform "clever" the word itself from being an acronym of the six drivers to being an adjective. So my next book will actually be on clever leadership. Precisely because the problem is so important, as you highlighted multiple times during our conversation.
1: We look forward to reading that one when it comes out and covering it on the show. Author of Clever, the six strategic drivers for the fourth industrial revolution, Alessandro Lanteri. Thank you for joining us. This was a
0: great, great conversation. Thank you very much for having me.